I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And lockdown, quarantine, social distancing, call it what you want, has separated us from the ones we care about and cut us off from the day-to-day lives we've so long known. The mental and emotional toll of the prolonged isolation has been excruciating for so many. But can we find a silver lining? May we use this time to become better friends and better partners, even truer, fuller versions of ourselves? Our guest this week offers his insight into how we may overcome the struggles in life through continued growth and even, potentially, transcendence. Scott Barry Kaufman, PhD, is a humanistic psychologist exploring the depths of human potential. He has taught courses on intelligence, creativity, and well-being at Columbia University, NYU, the University of Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. He hosts the number one psychology podcast in the world, The Psychology Podcast, and is author and or editor of nine books, including Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization, Wired to Create, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Creative Mind, which he co-wrote with Carolyn Gregoire, and Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. In 2015, he was named one of 50 groundbreaking scientists who are changing the way we see the world by Business Insider. And you can find out more at scottberrykaufman.com. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's nice to finally talk to you. We've uh, seen each other on Twitter quite a bit. Yeah, it really is great to talk to you, especially now. So your book transcends, Scott, which reimagines Abraham Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs and provides insight for realizing our full potential, came out last April, nearly a year ago. There are some fantastic in-depth discussions of this book that you've had with wonderful hosts, and you've even discussed the book at length on your own podcast in an episode where you played the guest and physicist Sean Carroll played the host. And I'll link that episode from last year in the show notes. So while I would like to discuss some of the elements of this vital and I think especially timely read to kind of ground our listener in its concepts, I'd ultimately like to frame the teachings of Transcend around the backdrop of an event that has been with us a little longer than your book has, which is the pandemic and its accompanying lockdowns. As you know, people are suffering in near innumerable ways, but compounding this tragedy has been the isolation, the despair, the feeling of disconnectedness and atomization that has come with being separated from the ones that we love and care about. So to take an image from your book that we'll discuss momentarily, our sailboats are further apart from one another than ever before. So before we go about the task of fixing our masts and straightening our rudders, let's discuss your friend Abraham Maslow. And I do say friend because, as you mentioned in the book's dedication, he's a dear friend you've never met. So what drew you to Maslow specifically, and what was the inciting incident that drove you to reimagine his hierarchy of needs? Great question, and great reflections prior to the question. Well, Maslow is, quite frankly, my spirit animal. I uh, discovered it really quickly when I was preparing for a course that I was teaching at University of Pennsylvania on positive psychology. I was preparing the history lesson of the class, and I came across the humanistic psychologists in the 60s and 70s. And of course, that led me to Abraham Maza, who led the humanistic psychology movement. And his writings just spoke to me in such a deep way, in such a profound way, much differently than a lot of modern day psychology and the way that was speaking to me. And I immediately dived in because I liked when I'm when I get captivated by an idea, I like to 
really get into it and look at every possible angle and really get beneath it. And I discovered his journals, his personal diaries. And I was like, you kidding me? You can buy his personal diaries? And I saw it was uh, ranked like 10 billion on Amazon, meaning no one else in the world ha- has read it <laughs> pretty much. And I bought it immediately. And I, I devoted like six months of my life to reading his journal entries. And I realized that he was developing a new theory of transcendence before he died, right before he died. And he had argued at a talk he gave just one year before he died that the highest motivation wasn't self-actualization, it was transcendence. And also, there are other things that, you know, one discovery led to another discovery, such as I I saw that he, he never drew a pyramid, and everyone had been depicting his hierarchy of needs as a pyramid. The inspiration and motivation just kept increasing, and I was like, I gotta, I gotta tell someone about this. <laughs> uh, usually what the way I am, my character structure, so to speak, is that when I find out the truth about something uh, that I don't think people know about, I get this insatiable drive to just want to tell people. And I think I've always been like that. Uh, so, uh, this was one of those things. And also, if it's particularly I'm motivated, if it's some truth that I think will help humankind. There are a lot of truths I don't get as motivated to be like, I have to tell everyone, I have to tell everyone. But but if I feel like it can increase the total tonnage of well-being in the world, um, as uh, my former colleague, uh, Martin Selgeman put it, then I really am motivated to do so. Yeah, some of the best passages in Transcender from those unpublished diaries. And I imagine from a psychologist's perspective, coming across that kind of treasure trove of unpublished work is like if you were a fiction writer and you came across all of J.R.R. Tolkien's unpublished writings before they were eventually published, it must have been quite the find. It was. I mean, I, I just I really dived into it. I went to the rare archives at the University of Akron and spent hours and hours uh, in a dusty library reading through letters and correspondences he wrote without any food or water, which you're not allowed to bring into the library. Um, I think I was even hallucinating at one point. Um, I had gone a whole day without food or water in a musty library, and but I was just so in the flow state. It's funny what one can endure when they're in the flow state of consciousness. You mentioned how Maslow himself never made a pyramid, which you go into detail in the book, but he did describe those needs as a hierarchy. So you can kind of see how someone would eventually form a pyramid in their mind. So for our listener, how can people better understand what he means by a hierarchy when a hierarchy really is about kind of ordering something top to bottom in terms of its importance? Well, he wanted to make clear that you make a good point. I mean, it's not totally unreasonable. I mean, it's not like someone drew a galactic star and was like, this is Basil's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> it was a it was a pyramid. You know, fair point. But I think that when you look in his writings, you have to recognize that he always made it clear that life is always in a constant dynamic state of being or becoming. We can move two steps forward, but always fall one step back. And while there are certain needs at any given moment in time may have priority over us, that can change as a function of maturity, as a function of uh, opportunities in life, environmental opportunities. There are things that can hold us back from our self-actualization. There are things that can facilitate our growth. And it seemed like a better way of thinking about it was not like life is a video game where you reach one level of need and keep going up the other levels and never return to the other levels, but more as an experience through um and the great unknown of human existence and the givens of human existence. And I reconceptualized it, which I think is more in line with his thinking about it, as a sailboat where you have your basic boat foundation, which is really important, or else you don't go anywhere. 
there are too many holes in the boat, analogous to human needs. If you are too insecure, you don't feel safe, you don't feel like you belong, you don't feel like you are worthy, then you get very stagnant fast. You find it very difficult to to strive towards self-actualization or even, dare I say, transcendence in such uh, deficiency modes of motivation. What you said did remind me of an unpublished essay of Maslow's from 1966 called A Critique of Self-Actualization Theory, in which he says that, quote, personal salvation and what is good for the person alone cannot really be understood in isolation. The good of other people must be invoked as well as the good for oneself. It is quite clear that a purely intra-psychic individualistic psychology without reference to other people and social conditions is not adequate, end quote. And that really stuck out to me out of many things in the book that did, because it feels like right now, as we're so far apart from one another, it seems like something that we need to keep in the back of our minds more than ever. So I guess I would turn to you and say, in what ways can we be better sailboats, not only for ourselves, but for our loved ones, the people we care about and our fellow citizens? The answer to that question relates a lot to the second part of the boat, which is not just the boat itself, but the sail. If you want to eventually go anywhere and grow, you have to get outside your comfort zone. You have to be aware that the waves can come crashing down on us at any, any time, that there can be very heavy winds. You don't know when it's coming, but you know it's coming. It's coming. It may not hit you, but it's coming. It's there. All these forces of nature are there not to conspire against us intentionally. They're just doing their thing, but they happen to get in the way of our self-actualization. So, to answer your question, I think that it's very important, first of all, of course, to make sure that you're tending to your basic needs. There's no magical number uh, percentage like, oh, well, you need to be 47.32 repeating percent satisfied in connection before you're allowed to care about your self-esteem. That's not correct. But it is reasonable to say that we should not neglect our lower needs and make sure the boat has some stability. But once once we you know are stable, it's, it's important not to focus so intently on those basic needs. For instance, self-esteem is really important if you don't have it. You know, it's one of the biggest predictors of depression, uh, low self-esteem. The problem isn't with self-esteem, it's with the pursuit of self-esteem. Some people stay in the boat their entire lives. And they never never dawns on them that they don't have to be so preoccupied with their self-esteem 24-7. I don't know. Do you ever see anyone on uh, Twitter or anywhere where people are just, that preoccupies everything they do is how many, how can I get more likes? How can I get my numbers up of view counts? It's exhausting to watch. <laughs> do you know anyone like that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite yeah, a bit. Yeah. I don't know why they don't get exhausted. That's such a good point in that if we spend too much time focusing on one of our needs at the expense of the others, the others can begin to sort of wither on the vine. But with the advent of something like social media, and I find myself falling into this trap repeatedly. I deleted my Facebook several years ago only to now find myself falling into this trap with friggin' Twitter. It can suck you in to the point where you're focusing so much on, let's say, the pursuit of self-esteem, which is, I love how you clarify it from self-esteem itself, Mm. the pursuit of it, right, which can be unhealthy. How do we balance our different needs when there's something like social media right in front of our face that's trying to gobble up just one need over and over and over again? Well, you have to tie yourself to the mast and to to, to complete our sailboat metaphor here. (laughs) (laughs) Metaphorically, we need to tie ourselves to something, tie ourselves to the sails. And when we have to, if our boat is passing something that just has too many temptations, for instance, I need to put my phone right now. I just threw it across the room. 
<laughs> and because I can't get up to get it now, uh, you know, you know mm-hmm. I can't like even let's say I get bored with this interview, like I get, I get bored with my own voice, for instance, um, I might get, have a tendency to want to check Twitter, you know, in the middle while I'm talking, <laughs> but I can't do that now. So you have to really set the parameters around the life that you want to live and stick to it. The former is a lot easier than the latter. Yeah. That reminds me of something you said on Twitter only a couple days ago. You said something that feels especially vital when we're in lockdown right now. And it's also something that I've been struggling with. You just mentioned it with being pulled away, your attention being pulled away from the phone, which is something that I'm always worrying about myself. You said, quote, one of the most important skills you can work on is increasing the quality of your attention, its vividness, richness, and capacity for deep absorption, end quote. What are some things that we can do to increase the quality of our attention aside from, let's say, throwing our cell phone to the other side of the living room? Yeah, well, it's like, I think it's like a muscle. It's, it's something that you, you know, some people call it attentional control, but I don't like that phrase. It's not like you're controlling your attention at all. It's just you're training the muscle that allows you to be more flexible in your attention so that you can decide and have have more degrees of freedom what you want to get deeply absorbed in, whatever it is. Sometimes I think it's okay to get deeply absorbed, not only okay, but productive to get deeply absorbed in your daydreams. You know, some people like make fun of daydreams, daydreamers or flighty daydreamers. And I think that's not good because there's a lot of, you know, focused daydreaming can be quite productive. You know, there are other things as well, and people say absolutely are not good sources of attention, but who are people to judge these things? I think the key is that you want to be able to practice that ability to switch and be laser-like focus in a way that's absorbing to you on the project you most want to do. And you asked me how. I mean, there's so many techniques that have been developed well before the scientific method was ever created. You know, lots of Buddhist practices I'm, I'm a big fan of. Obviously, mindfulness, not just meditation, but mindfulness as a muscle that you practice in the world when you're just talking to someone. You know, you can constantly practice these things. And it really is like a muscle in a lot of ways because these brain areas can atrophy without use. It becomes harder to uh, access these things as readily. You lay down the pathways the more you do them. And a lot of people. They haven't laid down good pathways for their executive attention networks in ways that allow them to have that flexibility. In fact, they're laying down pathways day in and day out that are the exact opposite, where they're training themselves to dart quickly between one thing to the next without paying any one thing any uh, delightful attention whatsoever. Yeah, I connect with that. I wish I didn't, but I connect with that on a very deep level. Do you like that phrase? I, do you like that phrase I just said, delightful attention? I do. Yeah. It reminds me of when I was a kid. I mean, I could get lost in books for hours at a time. I mean, eight, 10 hours at a stretch. I could be reading a new novel at the age of 12, 13, 14 years old, and the entire day would go by. I would be in my house and I would feel like I was in that library without any food or water because I would just completely forget everything outside the book that I was reading. And now, you know, and I'm in my 30s and it feels now that. Yeah, I can barely keep my attention for a short essay, you know, from like the New York magazine or something. It definitely feels like my attention is atrophied. And I know this is a common theme among many of my friends. I imagine many of yours as well. It all seems to kind of come back to social media, right? Whether it's causing people to endlessly pursue self-esteem 
or it's causing the atrophy of someone's ability to have attention that they used to have. If you're of a certain age where you lived before the advent of the internet, you can see how it can affect your ability to maintain your attention on a single task, even something you enjoy like a book for longer than 30 to 60 minutes. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. And I think that is a real, a real concern. And the only way to to solve that is for you to individually have the discipline. And it's easier said than done, uh, especially (laughs) when you're um, drawn into so many fires. You know, there's this expression, not my chimp, not my circus or something like that. Mm. But the point there is you have to really recognize that just because other people are having issues and problems and they're trying to pull you into their dramas doesn't mean that this is at all right for you or right for your own personal growth. Mm. In fact, it's more, more than not likely that it won't be <laughs> good for your personal growth. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about others or, or care about the things that others care about or help others, support others, because I, <laughs> I certainly believe we should care about our fellow humans. But we also have to set very good boundaries around the container of our soul. And I think that's very, very important because it's very, very easy for our soul to get sucked of all of its capacity for attention, vivid attention, for love, for you know, all the things that the soul contains. Very easy to get sucked right out of us simply because we've lost control over our attention. You mentioned in both your book and in other appearances, like the video you did for Big Think, which was entitled Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, updated for the 21st century, that Maslow, quote, believed that human development was constantly this two steps forward, one step back dynamic. We're constantly choosing the growth option, and then we're failing in some way, or we have some struggle, which is an inevitable part of life, and then we continue forward, end quote. And I find myself falling into this trap repeatedly. And I don't know if I know anyone who, especially in the creative industry, which I'm in, people are oftentimes kind of self-critical by default. So what are some ways that you've found in which we can kind of recognize in the moment and acknowledge when we're experiencing that growth, that we don't take that growth for granted? And how can we also be kinder to ourselves when we take an inevitable step backward, which always will come eventually? A lot of it just comes down to the recognition of the fact that you're an imperfect being. I mean, some people try to biohack themselves so much that their goal is perfection or even becoming superhuman. I think the goal should just be to become fully human. And that's good enough. I mean that in the humanistic psychology sense. If we're not able to uh, explore the full depths of our being in a way that allows us to tap into uh, the inner riches of our character and our unique talents and creative potentialities, I think it's a great tragedy, probably the greatest tragedy. You know, to to live your whole life with having your highest potentialities, not you know having them unfulfilled. So I think that in order to kind of move in that direction, we certainly have to do that with with a sense of self compassion and love uh, and appreciation for the fallibility of humans, the inevitable fallibility of humans, the common humanity that we have with everyone else, and to not have a, a view of transcendence as though it makes you above others in some way. Some of these gurus, you know, think they've transcended because they have power over others, and then they abuse their power in all sorts of horrific ways. That's not my conceptualization of transcendence. That's my conceptualization of unhealthy transcendence. But I think healthy transcendence is more a matter of connecting with humanity, feeling a sense of oneness. My sense of healthy transcendence is more horizontal than vertical. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I think of... um a horizontal versus vertical integrated company, right? The horizontally integrated company has all of its different departments in equal measure with one another, rather than like a kind of a top to bottom hierarchy. All of the departments in the company are working together side by side. 
Yeah, that's a great analogy or comparison. It's not an analogy. It's a great comparison. Something you said just now really made me think of, at least for me, one of the most profound passages from the book, which is the story of David Yaden. You describe a young man in his freshman year of college, quote, feeling lost and confused. He didn't feel as though he knew who he was or where he was going with his life. He was struggling to form his views of the world. A lot was in flux. He was even a bit depressed and withdrew from the college party scene and social life. But one evening, as he lay on his dorm room bed, feeling so be it, come what may, an acceptance of moving forward despite all the confusion and uncertainty, something spontaneously happened that would change Yaden's life forever, end quote. And I think that, you know, had I read this book, had this book existed at any other point, you know, pre or post lockdown, it wouldn't have connected with me in such a way. But I often find myself, although I'm no longer a freshman in college, I do find myself lying in bed some nights because of everything that's been going on in the world feeling lost and confused. And I think that's something that a lot of people are feeling. So what exactly happened to Yaden that night? And how does it relate to the ultimate goal of transcendence? Yeah, David's a good friend of mine. And we've, we've chatted about this quite a bit. And the best way to describe what, what he went through is, is, is really to read his own account of it, which you can do in the book. It just wouldn't be doing a good service to try to summarize such a poignant experience where it's almost not fair to do so. But, you know, the general outline is that he was on his bed and he felt this uh, overwhelming feeling of a burning cessation in his chest and immense love for humanity and it was overpowering. And it happened after some struggles. I think he was going through some depression. Um, it was just like all that just disappeared overnight and he suddenly was more motivated to take care of his body, for instance, to eat well, exercise. And it really transformed him. I mean, lots of people who also, there's another person I describe, uh, Catherine McLean, who had a very similar experience. And the more I collect these kinds of experiences, the more I'm amazed at just how similar they all are in their description of what it's like. And you can call it a mystical experience. You can can put any label on it, whatever you want, but I'm really interested in the underlying phenomenon underneath it. Have you had one of these experiences yourself? I am not sure that I have. It was always something in, during my religious years when I was a Christian as a boy and into my early 20s, it was always something that I was hoping would happen, but never, I suppose, came. And I know that this is something that kind of Yaden struggled with initially after he had it was whether or not, you know, he would set aside his agnosticism and perhaps embrace a religiosity, which he eventually decided not to and stuck firm with his agnosticism. But it really kind of connected with me because, I mean, if I understand it correctly, is that an example of a peak experience? And is it something that he achieved prior to transcendence, prior to self-actualization? One never reaches self-actualization. Remember, we're not a pyramid anymore. <laughs> you <laughs> That's forgot. True. Yeah, you forgot. True. There is no... We're a sailboat now. Old habits die hard. Old habits die yeah, hard. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. You know, there's no, there's no level that you. Maybe you're testing me uh, to see if I'm a hypocrite, <laughs> hypocrite or not. But um, you know, there's no level upon which uh, we ever reach any of these things. It's not like you know, before self-actualization, after self-actualization. It's all this journey that never ends, and I mean, it may end at brain death, but, <laughs> but we don't know. We don't know. A hundred percent to what extent it ends. But okay, the point here is that I think that with David and with a lot of people who have these transcendent experiences, they usually come after a great period of struggle. There's something to this idea that if we max ourselves out, for instance, some people say that it's almost euphoric when you have a really hard workout and then 
after the workout, you recover by meditating. There's something about the transcendence that emerges from that meditation session that's more powerful than if you didn't have any struggle preceding the meditation. So there's something there. I don't understand mm. it all yet. <laughs> I don't think I ever will. <laughs> I'm not God, but I'm very curious and I want to understand scientifically more of this phenomenon and what's really going on there. But there is something quite profound to the individual that is going on there subjectively. And it's very important to not ignore that subjective experience. That's something I really liked about the humanistic psychologists is they were interested in what does it mean to live an experientially vital life. They actually weren't so much about quantitative analysis, like modern day positive psychology is so focused on scales and numbers. And, you know, I put myself in that. I mean, I publish scales and numbers. You know, it's important to put things on a scientific foundation, but I think it's also important to be informed by people's experiences, a subjective qualia, so to speak, of the quality of their consciousness, because it's hard to quantify one's consciousness. That makes sense. Even after having read the book, I, it's something that I'm still trying to struggle with and kind of internalize. I think I got tripped up on um, Maslow had that lecture in 1956, I think it was, the cognition of being in the peak experiences. He talked about self-actualized people can have a peak experiences more often. It's something that someone can almost like train like a muscle. I wasn't sure if that was also a view that you still maintained or if that's a place where you kind of differed with Maslow. So that was kind of what the question was rooted in. But I totally understand what you're saying. It can be hard to kind of break that hierarchical, <laughs> at least for me, where I try to like order things and stack them. I guess it's something that you have to embrace to unlearn. Yeah, it could be especially hard to systematizers. Yes. <laughs> Guilty. Is what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. Did you like Transcend? Or what are your own reflections on that book? I mean, if I'm getting quite personal, what Transcend did for me, I suppose, is, you know, I come from a background where I, I went to film school, pursued the film industry. I've always been creative. And I think what Transcend did for me was help me to understand that and a lot of my friends in the creative industry kind of can get trapped in this, is you kind of pursue a goal, whatever that goal might be. You want to write a novel or a screenplay or produce a film, and you feel, I think erroneously, as noted in the book, that once I complete this thing, once I win this award, once my film screens at this festival or my painting is shown in this museum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that I will finally reach that place that I have been wanting to reach my entire life, yeah. right? And so I think that Transcend really connected with me in that way because I have felt repeatedly a feeling of hollowness when I achieve that thing. Where the tension can come for me is, in the book you talk about how the process of self-actualization or that journey, let's say, is finding what your unique talent is that you can give to the world. The question that I have is, is what if someone finds what their unique talent is? something that they've known since they were a child and they've honed it and they've, you know, gone as far as they can. And, you know, it's life is a process to perfect it, I suppose, or the act of perfecting it like Jiro and his sushi, so to speak. And yet they still feel a hollowness, an unfulfillment. I guess that's just a question that I've struggled with for most of my life and something that I really liked that you kind of dedicated a book really towards that phenomenon. And that's why I connected with it. That's great. And you're not alone. <laughs> You're not alone. I think I think we all feel dead inside right now. Mm. 
I know you had that to put it more dramatically. <laughs> you didn't you didn't quite put that for you didn't say you feel dead inside, but I think uh, look, I think we all feel that way right now. And I think that's because we're not being filled up spiritually. Yes. And I'm not talking about religiously. Yeah, I'm talking about, you know, we filling up the bucket of our spirit. I mean, that means something. I mean, we need things to lift our spirits. We need things to have hope for. We need to feel connected. Of course, if you're cooped up in a little apartment or or you're just with your family 24/7 and they drive you nuts, you know, and you can't get out, you know, of course you're going to feel like your other potentialities aren't being fulfilled and we need to operate on all cylinders to become a whole person. Self-actualization is a lot about becoming whole and so many of us either squander or actively suppress or ignore, hide or run away from our greatest potentialities because we're scared of them. We're afraid of them. We're, we're scared of the power they can have over the whole system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's also wrapped up for a lot of people with people not only have a fear of failure, they have a fear of success. What will happen if I achieve what I've been striving for? One of the reasons I especially wanted to, to kind of talk with you right now because of the lockdown is I've witnessed a lot of my friends, not only some who've had their relationships kind of come closer together, but also some who have gotten into a rhythm of being apart from one another for nine or 10 hours at a stretch. Now they're kind of confined, so to speak, in their home with one another and sometimes even children. And that can really kind of fray or strain a relationship. I don't want to keep quoting you to you, but you are a very quotable person, Scott. Oh, thank you. It's true. I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. That's the thing. Like, I didn't know, like I said, there's delightful attention. What did I say? Yeah. But it made me think like, I didn't know that was going to come out of my mouth because I'm just awkward. <laughs> so like weird shit comes out of my mouth. But then I'm like, <laughs> sometimes like there's 15% of that weird shit. I'm like, oh, I want to develop that idea more. You know what I mean? So I just thought of like, I want to write an article, a blog post on delightful attention versus uh, is undelightful word, undelightful attention. Anyway, I digress, but thank you. It's totally fine. I've mentioned this to other guests in the past. I mean, one of the great things about having conversations with interesting people is that it can lead to a lot of garden paths where yeah. even just naturally you go to pursue other topics of conversation, even if they might be wholly unrelated to what you initially wanted to talk about. It doesn't make them any less amazing, wonderful, delightful, so to speak. But there was this quote from one of Maslow's unpublished essays, quote, we try to make a rose into a good rose rather than seek to change roses into lilies, end quote. And I don't think he could have anticipated what that would mean in the year 2020 and 2021. But I often hear friends and loved ones in frustration with the people that they're living with, who they've dedicated their lives to. It feels like their frustration comes from wanting to change a rose into a lily. And so my question to you would be, is this is kind of leading into the idea of a healthy selfishness, which I find is also so vital right now, is how can we be kinder to our our loved ones and how can we accept them as roses rather than try and change them into lilies. Unconditional positive regard, <laughs> as Carl Rogers put it. You know, but you don't have to go through a whole psychothera- humanistic psychotherapy program to learn how to do that with others. A lot of it is treating humans sometimes like they're sunsets. They're beautiful just the way they are. Mm. You, you can admire something someone that is quite different from you, like you would admire a sunset. You don't try to say, oh, I don't know, let's, I'd like to change the <laughs> top left corner of that sun and uh, if only it was a darker hue. And why, why, don't we, why is everyone trying to change everyone? You know what I mean? Like everyone's like, mm. don't say that. Don't do that. Don't walk there. Don't smile. You know, you offended me. You, Your eyebrow went up. You know, it's like, <laughs> okay, well, you know, like, okay, 
you're the one who chose to be offended, first of all. Mm. Uh, that was a choice you made. Mm-hmm. It's not like uh, there was a Ten Commandments, you know, Moses was like, thou shalt be offended every time someone raises their eyebrow. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, that didn't make it onto the will. tablet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're allowed to have free will over that one, <laughs> I think. Um, you know, look beyond. You know, I, I can't mm. tell you how often I get people that it'd be so easy to say, you know, screw you. Like, someone on Twitter says something. The really annoying comment that so easily could be deeply offensive. If I wanted it to be, mm-hmm. I could very quickly respond and say that was deeply offensive. It's so easy. But there are lots of moments where you say like, I put people off guard sometimes because I'll be like, can you clarify that trolling statement? <laughs> I won't say that trolling statement, but I'm saying, can you clarify that? You know, something that seems like an obvious trolling statement. And you keep pulling back the layers of reality and mm. just seeing things as they are, not as you're interpreting them, what they mean and everything. You really understand what they mean and you see where they're coming from. You see like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like Within the context of that person's life, you know, what I said would have brought out this in them, you know and made them perceive it this way and then i can clarify what i really meant and then they say oh well that's interesting i didn't didn't realize that that's what you meant by it and they say well it's of course because you're viewing it through your own lens and then a whole fascinating conversation can ensue mm. that often leads to friendship i'd say 80 percent of the times something that and i don't know if 80 percent, but <laughs> a, a sizable percentage of times or something seems like oh that person's a clear troll mm. it's like no they're not that's not their intention Mm. You know, their intention wasn't, you know, I'd say it's actually a smaller percentage of people are trolls. Mm-hmm. Like that's what they are as their being, you know, a much smaller percentage than we think because we dismiss everyone as trolls that makes us uncomfortable. Yes. Well, I think that those two things are connected. The trolling, so to speak, and the dismissal. I think to me, my own um, armchair (laughs) psychologist, I don't have a degree, but is the idea that they're both rooted, the dismissal and the troll are rooted in both a desire to see the world as black and white, as good and evil, as Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, and also just a lack of generosity. Oh, yeah. Grace. Yes, yes. You you said this yesterday. I'm so glad that we're going to get to talk about it. Grace culture. You mentioned grace culture yesterday on Twitter, and I thought it was so phenomenal. I had to add it because I wanted to talk about it with you. I've talked about this with other guests, whether it's Alexandra Hudson and her desire for civility, which is a respect for our fellow citizens that transcends politeness, or Chloe Valdery or Aisha Kambi. You know, we've discussed this exact same theme. My homegirl. Yes. Oh, she's phenomenal. But, you know, I want to clarify what grace culture is because I think you summed it up really well last night. You wrote, quote, Instead of immediately looking for reasons to cancel someone, we look for reasons to give people the benefit of the doubt as much as possible within reason and in the context of past behavior. We lead with a shared appreciation of the fallibility of humans. And I've seen you model it. I've seen online. I've seen people come at you with just complete lack of charity. And I've seen you in real time or however close one can get to real time when it comes to posting. I've seen you do it. So I guess what inspired you to coin the term? How long have you been thinking about the concept of grace culture? And how do you hope it can manifest itself in our lives? I hadn't thought about it for a while. It's one of those things that just, like, I don't know what's going to come into my head. (laughs) Uh, And it just immediately came to my head because I was striving for, I was searching for a term or something that is the opposite of what I was seeing in the world. See, it's so much easier to criticize and keep staying in the muck. But I am always trying to think of, I want to just move in the direction I want to go in. Like, let's just move there already. <laughs> like, like, why yeah. Why are you going to spend your whole freaking life just playing, you know, in the dirt and the mud when you can just step out of the mud 
and just start walking towards the light. Mm. You know, you may not get there. You may not even get far, but just keep walking. And if you walk there, you'll find all the people in the mud are like, oh, there's another way. <laughs> oh, you mean, we can, <laughs> you mean we're allowed to step out of the mud? Oh, wow. Okay. And then, you know, just be with the change you want to see in the world is my philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I was really getting incensed over this constant talk of cancel culture. Like person comes out, they're like, you know, I will not be silenced. Do not cancel me. And then there are other people who are trying to cancel the cancel culture people. And then I saw a third group of people who want to cancel those who want to cancel those who want to cancel cancel culture. <laughs> now, look, that's that's three levels of canceling. Yeah. And you have to do that. You have to think that through what that means. But, um, <laughs> but it actually does mean something. But I noticed there are those folk. And then I noticed folks who are at the fourth level, they don't even know it. <laughs> they want to cancel those who want to cancel the want to cancel those who want to cancel cancel culture but anyway it's turtles all the way down in the muck yes and i was just like you know what like can we just move towards grace <laughs> it's an infinite regress in the in, in the dark side you know but then that idea just i was just grasping for what it would that term be yeah does this make any sense at all it makes complete sense it's something that I try and model. I'm not very good at it. I've gotten a little better with age. I think that it is rooted in to practice grace to other people, you first must practice grace with yourself. I've never met someone who is kind and charitable to others who is also unkind to themselves. Uh-huh. The people I've met in real life who truly inspire me with their charity, with their grace, with their forgiveness. And these people, you know, are are not hyper common, but the ones that I've met, they are very forgiving of their past selves and present selves. And, and they have a deep well of grace for their own fallibility, for their own <laughs> imperfections. Yeah. I think you you have to, you have to have that core before you can extend it to others. Yeah. Yeah. I would say what I have more of is uh, just a hilarity about myself. Like uh, <laughs> I, I realize I'm absurd. It's funny because uh, as much as I'm trying to ignore distractions, uh, I just got a notification that there was a comment on my YouTube video and someone wrote, why is this host such a weenie? Oh my god! They put a, a hot dog um, emoticon. <laughs> now look, here's the thing is that like, I know I'm supposed to get upset about that, but it's kind of funny. And like, I also like, just don't take myself that seriously where like, I'm going to stew over that. I mean, it's kind of funny. Like the person doesn't know me, you know, and like, and, and I absolutely can be a weenie sometimes, <laughs> but I don't think that's the totality of my being, you know, like I know myself better than yeah. this person blue couture. <laughs> I shouldn't even like give them any, I'm pretty confident that I know the totality of my being better than blue couture. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I think that's the point here is like, you're allowed to have confidence in the fact that no one else in the world knows you as better as you know yourself. Mm. And if you know the totality of yourself and you kind of like yourself, that's all that matters. You know, I actually like myself. I think I would want to be friends with myself. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, I am friends with myself, Yeah. <laughs> you know, because there's so many parts of me that are absurd, but you can laugh at that. Yeah. Like can be totally be a weenie sometimes as anyone can, you know, but there's lots of times, you know, I can, there are things I do and things I say that I'm like, oh, I, I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. I like that guy. You know, if, if you can like the totality of your being, that's all, you know, you, what it was, it was a matter if someone comes and writes something on your YouTube page. I mean, people are ridiculous. People are absurd and, and you're absurd and I'm absurd. You know, we're all absurd. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that that gets it self-acceptance, self-love, yeah. which can be very difficult sometimes to do. But I think that I think that what you said is really profound in a way in that we have to recognize the absurdity of life, the absurdity of ourselves, our own bodies, some of our own thoughts. And through embracing that absurdity, 
when other people might point something out about us that in the moment might or might not be absurd, it doesn't come across as some kind of, you know, even if they intended it as cruel, you can let it bounce off of you because you recognize your own absurdity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting because this absurdity thing, it, it's, it just feels a little bit different than self-love. I guess what I was, mm. yeah, because I believe in self-love, but I think I'm also averse sometimes to corny things. <laughs> and sometimes I'm not. The point of absurdity is is recognizing our contradictions, yes. right? And, and recognizing that to be human is to have contradictions. There's sometimes I am really in the moment and I'll feel something deeply and I'll write a tweet that is very authentic to me at that moment. But then the next day I'll read that tweet and I'll cringe. I'll be like, oh my <laughs> gosh, Scott, that is the corniest shit. Like, why are you not canceled? You should be canceled for corniness. Just corniness. <laughs> the corny police. Yeah, like the yeah. corny police should really should have come after me on that one. <laughs> and and not only that, but I'll go one step further. Sometimes a day later, I'll read some of the comments on my tweet. And mm. once someone wrote something, they said, I really follow you because so much of what you say is profound, but then you write shit like this. And I was like, you know what? He's right. <laughs> He's right. <laughs> like, you know, like sometimes the, the, oh, some man. of my uh, sentimentality slips through the cracks too much, but that's part of liking yourself yes. is not only recognizing absurdity, but also recognizing that, you know, sometimes some things that in some moments is authentic, honoring that. But still, I, I didn't delete the tweet because I honor the person who in that moment felt authentically moved mm. to write something like that. Sometimes I am authentically moved. I feel things so deeply. I'm such a sensitive person. Yeah. I have been my entire life. It's been a common theme my whole life. I remember as young as I can be, I used to three, four years old, staring at the stars and feeling a deep sense of dread come over me about human existence. But you know, it's just like, I'm so sensitive. So sometimes- I feel so moved to write something I'm so touched about humanity or I just want to just wish people a wonderful day. And it might seem incompatible with the same guy who then comes up with like highbrow intellectual arguments, you know, the next day, but it's all just part of who I am. And I think that it's all part of who we all could be if we embrace the totality of our being and the absurdness of our being. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I am very similar to you in that way. I mean, I've always, uh, one, I've, I've always had a propensity for dad jokes and corniness in general. It's, <laughs> it's a, it feels like it's a genetic inheritance from my father, but I have always been a sensitive kid and now man as well. But I think that this is my own personal take. I think it is impossible to strive for authenticity and not occasionally come up corny. Oh, I think those two things are absolutely intertwined. If you're going to strive for something that's really pure and something that gets the heart and soul of what it means to be human. I mean, there's a fine, fine line <laughs> between something that is truly authentic and, and not that corniness is inauthentic, but that something that is truly meaningful and profound and transcendent in its wisdom and something that can come across like, uh, you know, chicken soup for the soul esque. Yeah. It's tough because sometimes I don't think this in the self help world, I don't think it all comes necessarily from an authentic place. I think some people are marketers. They're they're actually, they're trying to say exactly the things they want to say they know people will want to hear to buy their book. Uh, Don't you think that happens sometimes? I'm not saying that, that I'm not calling out the chicken soup for the soul folks. No, I, you're absolutely right. Well, here's a question I would pose to you. Sorry, not to cut you off. Um, Go ahead. 
<laughs> when, when something tickles my brain, I can just start talking out of turn. So thank you for the generosity. Okay. So for someone out there who, you know, let's say that they've already read Transcend or they're going to purchase it and read it as well, but they're also interested in other avenues of self-development beyond just your book and they want to look to others. How do people become better at discerning between the kind of self-help that is authentic, you know, and, and from people who are really striving to better their fellow human beings and give them pathways to things like transcendence or loving themselves better or just living more authentic lives and the marketing, right? Because I think to the untrained eye, sometimes those two things might appear similar on the surface, even though they are rooted in something very different. Does that make sense? Hmm. I think the best kind of self-help is the one that just illuminates what you really already know about yourself. You know, people will project to do their favorite guru or someone say, wow, that person is a genius. They made that point. It's so profound. It's so insightful. And I don't think they're giving themselves enough credit. Often, the most impactful self-help is just something that helps you reflect upon yourself, something that you already probably knew at some deeper level, but you've ignored it, or something about yourself that is positive, but you were uh, too blind to see it because you were so focused on the muck. So, some of the most helpful you know, self-help is really that which really allows you to uh, feel empowered to make a change that you've always wanted to make or to see the reality of your situation in a way that you had never seen so clearly before. But maybe you had seen it clearly, but you just didn't have the confidence that you were seeing it correctly. So, I don't know. If it works, it works. Yeah. You know? And almost doesn't matter what the marketing is or the, the, the self-help person's intentions. I'm not into call-out culture, I guess is my point. Uh, and I would never want you to. I think that what you said, though, is really key, which is that oftentimes we look outward yeah. constantly for the answer, when oftentimes a lot of what the answer is, is, is self-work, is working on the self and believing that you don't always have to rely on the gurus or the people who are telling you to live this way or that way, that oftentimes you can find those answers within yourself. And I think that that's something a lot of people, myself included, can forget. Absolutely. Very well said. So I want to just offer you the question that I ask all of my guests at the end of each show, which is... We're limited, Scott, as individuals in all sorts of ways. We're limited in our time, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person, and I, and I consider you at least based on your writings, your podcast appearances, your Twitter presence, a pretty well-intentioned and caring person. But even they can't be thinking of every other person, every group of people all the time. It's just impossible. There aren't enough hours in the day. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? I really would like to offer empathy to African Americans in the United States right now who particularly feel as though they aren't being appreciated or being seen for their full humanity. And it's interesting because I say that genuinely and not uh, there's a million different motives one can impute on someone who makes a statement like that today, like, uh, oh, you're just being woke, or you're uh, pandering to the woke mob, or you're doing virtuous virtue signaling, or there's a million different ways to reduce what I just said to some caricature. But I've been on Clubhouse a lot lately, which is an app, and I've been listening a lot to particular experience of a particular group of African Americans in America. And when I hear them and their experiences and how they still don't feel safe in our country, it breaks my heart. 
And I think we need to be listening to each other a lot more. But in particular, I would like to explicitly extend that empathy in a way that I don't see it extended in a lot of my intellectual circles that I swim in these days. Yeah, well said. And I just want to say, at the risk of sounding corny, (laughs) I have been inspired to be corny right now by this talk. As someone who has struggled with depression, struggled with self-doubt, struggled with trying to love myself and embrace my full personhood, your writing, your work, what you do has been an inspiration for me. And so I just want to say thank you, Scott, for allowing another corny guy to feel a little bit better about himself and for writing works like Transcend and your other books that I think empower us to be better versions and fuller versions of ourselves. So thank you for the work that you do. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It really means a lot. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. 